1: I'm Stephen Coates, and these are the days of the underground. Never out of fashion, but never in fashion. Pagan, piratical pre-punks. In technicolor, crusty, larry hairy space-rocking glory. Perhaps patronisingly dismissed by those who've put them in a box with white people with dreadlocks who don't change their underwear very often and live in converted Bedford vans. But people who know grudgingly respect them. And rightfully so. They were formed in 1969 and they are still going. Not many bands can say that, right? And for all that time, they've been fiercely independent A revolutionary revolving whirligig with a bewildering cast list of members, denizens of the West London Underground. They are the band Hortwind. About whom a beautiful new book has been published by Strange Attractor Press in various technical editions. It's called Hortwind Days of the Underground, Radical Escapism in the Age of Paranoia. This is what it says... Avatars of the underground, figureheads of the free festival scene and heralds of punk, Hawkwind were one of the bands that defined the 1970s. At the height of their artistic and commercial powers, Hawkwind channeled and amplified the era's psychic tenor via a science fiction sensibility, mind-blowing visuals, and their unique brand of deep space psychedelia. Well, I'm very pleased that we've got the author of that wonderful volume, With us today, the journalist Joe Banks. Hello, Joe. Hi there. Joe, first of all, congratulations on this book, it's beautiful. Um, But before we dig into the book and into Hortwind, and in fact into that West London scene which they emerged from and were so important in the formation of, what about you? How did you come to write this book? And, well, how did you come to Hortwind?
0: I mean, I, it's, it's a classic case of having an older brother who, who would play kind of music when I was younger, and he would play, you know, all of the kind of classic rock stuff, you know, Deep Purple and Pink Floyd and Queen and people like that, but he had a copy of Warrior on the Edge of Time, which is Hawkwind's 1975 album, one of their kind of best efforts, and that to me when he was playing that this this sounded like something completely other from the other kind of rock music he was playing it's the sound was so kind of dense and involving there's the whole fold-out sleeve there's these spoken word pieces which you know to a nine or ten year old were actually incredibly kind of sinister so that's where the obsession with Hawkwind started but the reason really for writing the book I mean Hawkwind have had a couple of quite decent biographies written about them already so if you want to read the story of hawkwind it's out there but the thing i thought was missing was more of a um a cultural take if you like on uh, hawkwind's importance to the 1970s because it seems the thing that's really overlooked is 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 quite the impact that they they had on both kind of music but the the kind of music scene in the 1970s um You know, we very much think of the 1970s now that it was, you know, the aforementioned kind of classic rock bands and and prog rock. And then around the mid 70s, punk came along and changed everything. But there's this alternative narrative, uh, which is kind of running throughout the 1970s, um, which I I guess, you know, the the title Days of the Underground, it's a Hawkwind song, but it also is referring to this alternative narrative, this underground that was happening throughout Britain, which tends to be under-acknowledged now and also... What tends to be under acknowledged is Hawkwind's absolute key role in this. I mean, they were the real figureheads of 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 the days of the underground, and that was the thing I really wanted to to address in this book and kind of make some connections and draw out uh, all of the kind of different angles on Hawkwind that I think generally these days seems to be completely lacking. I mean, if, if Hawkwind are talked about at all these days, it tends to be, you know, as as uh, you know, as the the kind of the people who created space rock, but also as this kind of lysergic soap opera, if you like, you know, because there's been a huge amount of comings and goings from Hawkwind. But I, I think that is, is, is kind of missing the point of quite how important Hawkwind were. Uh, I mean, you know, for me, they're just simply one of the most important bands that Britain's ever, ever produced.
1: Right. We don't normally cover individual bands on this programme, but one of the fascinating things about Hawkwind is that they came from this culture that you, just, you talk about, this West London underground culture. And it's quite specific geographically in terms of the counterculture in London. You know, you had the sort of Chelsea set um, in the 60s, which, you know, was maybe much more kind of posh and sort of celebrity and swinging 60s until uh, mid-70s when it became more punk. And then in sort of Soho, where we are, it was more shiny, more film, more fashion, possibly. But in West London, it was more kind of down and dirty. Also more political... Um, much more experimental somehow and they were very much, you know, part of that and promoted it, right?
0: I think so, I mean, the point I make is that Hawkwind, you know, from the early 70s onwards become a real rallying point for for the the alternative to the alternative, if you like, I mean, if 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 you're not interested in in progressive rock or you know, kind of the Rolling Stones or Deep Purple or whatever in the nineteen seventies, you know, but you're into rock music, there's there's not much of an alternative out there, you know, other than Hawkwind. I mean, we we look now, for instance, at the 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 German bands, the so-called crowd rock bands who were in a similar area but there's quite a lot of them there's an entire kind of scene in germany whereas if you look at kind of britain in in those there's there's, there's practically there's practically nothing there's as, as an alternative and hawkwind really were that alternative and as you said they've they've continued to be that rallying point it's really interesting to see how you know um there's obviously the free festival scene which develops in the 80s and then that kind of um segues, um seamlessly into the the kind of uh a rave scene and kind of outdoor raves and they hawkwind were there the whole time as this as this kind of alternative rallying point for people who wanted something other than you know kind of what the mainstream was giving them
1: terrific so let's go back in time to sort of late 60s that part of london labret grove portobello road w10 w11 now one of the most expensive parts of the town but what was this kind of milieu that they emerged from and participated in?
0: OK, so, I mean, Labrick Grove, um, I mean, is now, you know, Notting Hill. Labrick Grove is, is is almost like a byword for gentrification now. But in the 60s, um, well, 50s and 60s, I mean, Labrick Grove was probably little better than a, a slum as far as a lot of people were concerned. Uh, and it's obviously where, you know, when the Windrush generation come over that's where they're basically shunted to so it's kind of poor housing you know slum housing um but it's also very cheap housing which means that you know for people um students particularly for instance who are wanting to kind of you know um live somewhere cheaply but near to central london you know st martin's college those people so you get a lot of kind of quite arty types moving into the area for for cheap housing and then when you know the, the the counterculture, if you like, starts to emerge um, with with figures such as uh, John Hopkins, um, for instance. The uh, the London Free School is established in Labbrook Grove, um, and there's also other kind of magazines start to emerge there. Uh, things like Friends, and just generally, it it becomes a kind of real melting pot for for kind of counterculture in in London, you know, the, the part that's not to do with, you know, Carnaby Street or, you know, kind of King's Road in Chelsea, this is actually to do with where the people were living and actually kind of making the culture and making the music. Um, for instance, you have things like the All Saints Church Hall in Ladbroke Grove, which is like a very important venue for Pink Floyd when they're, you know, getting it together and there's numerous kind of benefits kind of happen there. And eventually that is the place where Hawkwind make their very first appearance. Um now, there's a mythic aspect to this um that Hawkwind supposedly gate crash this gig that was already happening in august 1969 and basically turn up and say can we play and there's various different versions about whether this is actually the case or whether they played before but this seems to be you know the, the this is the foundation stone of their creation story if you like turning up um you know and the bands that were playing that night um High Tide and Skin Alley, again, kind of local bands who were, you know, making a bit of a noise and getting a name for themselves at the time. They weren't, you know, they weren't pop groups. They were pretty avant-garde themselves. But Hawkwind really, really kind of stood out by, you know, kind of getting on stage 15 minutes of kind of really improvised kind of noise, supposedly based around kind of eight miles high. But, you know, who knows? It's slightly lost in the the kind of annals of time. Um, But it's one of those... Those kind of instances where everything seems to come together at the right time so that night john peel is in the audience and he says to um doug smith of clearwater promotions who are the company putting on this gig he's saying you know this band are interesting you you should think about getting involved and sure enough doug smith um eventually does kind of get in touch with them and from there the whole thing kind of sets off with you know clearwater being one of the the most important kind of promoters at the time in that area starting to get them gigs, and then, you know, Hawkwind start to kind of roll from there. Um I mean, that, that whole thing really was, was not to be like a standard band. They weren't interested in the Star Trip. They were just about making music and, and making a new kind of noise, and the fact that they would then pretty much play wherever you wanted them to, you know, whether it would be paid gigs or whether it would be benefit gigs or even just kind of playing under the, the concrete arches of the Westway Um, They they very, very quickly become, you know, pretty much the underground's most prominent band. Yes.
1: You know, we had Nick Laird-Clues, later of the Dream Academy, on the programme. Did a couple of shows with Nick, actually. He gave this wonderful evocation of West London. I mean, he was born there. He grew up there. He still lives there. And he gave us this kind of child's, teen's, young man's, musician's perspective of this countercultural evolution that was happening around him at that time in West London. And as you say, it was an incredibly fertile mixing pot of cultures, the Windrush generation, the Afro-Caribbeans, the Portuguese community, Irish community as well, I think. Um, This fading, crumbling grandeur mixed in with all these, uh, you know, new generations of people coming to live there. And so let's, let's dig in a bit. How did Hortwind begin? I'm assuming that even then, the genesis, the genesis of the band was the main man, Dave Brock, who's still the captain of the good ship Hawkwind. Uh, so tell us about that, Joe. How did Hawkwind emerge in that fertile compost of counterculture that was West London? It was Dave Brock, right? They got it going. That's
0: right. So, I mean, Hawkwind kind of officially come into being in 1969. But Dave Brock has been on the scene, if you like, for a number of years before that. Um, I mean, not least in in as much as he was pretty much making pretty good money as a busker, um, you know, around Labrick Grove, but also, you know, in the West End and the cinema queues. I mean, it is interesting the way that kind of Hawkwind do very quickly come into being. I mean, at the start of 1969, Dave Brock is, um, he's he's a part of, uh, he, he, uh, he plays a show at the Royal Albert Hall as part of, um, the uh, the the buskers show. So there was for a very short period of time around a, a guy called Don Partridge who had had a couple of hits and was essentially a busker. He put together this show at the Royal Albert Hall, pulling in kind of other buskers and itinerant musicians. Dave Brock kind of plays that, and then I think in May of 1969 he's he's on a on a double decker bus touring the country as a busker still. But in parallel with this, he's trying to get a a new type of band together as well. Uh, I mean, he's he's played in bands previously, uh, probably most prominently a, a group called the Famous Cure, who were kind of had a reasonable noise in places like the Netherlands for a while. But he he wants to do something new. He's kind of experimenting with tape loops, and so at, at the same time that he's he's this kind of busker guy. He's also kind of putting this new band together. And as I say, I mean, really, they only start you know, rehearsing probably from kind of summer 69. And then this opportunity comes up in in August to play this gig at the All Saints Hall. And really, it it, it goes from there. But you're absolutely right. I mean, Dave Brock is... is, um, There's been a number of very strong personalities in the band throughout the years, but Dave Brock is still very much the captain of the ship. And even in those early days when it was much more of a communal band, you got the impression that he was the guy who was basically pushing everything along, and he was certainly the guy who was writing most of the music.
1: So he's remained, you know, at times the singer, but always a guitar player. I mean, in some some ways, seems very modest. You know, he's quite happy for other people to take the lead during times, but at the same time, obviously, a sort of benevolent dictator because he always keeps hold of the reins right to this day. And were they uh, one of those bands who were kind of living together, working together? You know, was it a kind of commune-type based outfit?
0: I think I think some of the guys at various times were were certainly living in the same house, but I mean I think that's also a point about Labrador Grove is that they were they were faces on the scene, if you like. I mean, when Dave Brock wasn't busking around Labrador Grove, I think he occasionally kind of worked as a as like an electrician there. Um, Nick Turner, of course, who was also one of the big figures in Hawkwind, um, had a had a van, so he was basically a delivery driver for a lot of the head shops and would be moving, you know, kind of equipment around for other groups. Robert Calvert, uh, who had originally started off in Margate, came and started basically living with Nick Turner in Lowbrook Grove and he would be a regular feature on all of the cafes and started working for um, Friends magazine, that I mentioned before, kind of submitting poetry and stories for them. Um, and yeah, and, and then other members of the band as well would be kind of living you know, kind of variously in houses with each other. It, it wasn't like an duel thing where they were literally living in a commune. I don't think they, they all ever lived in one place together. But, uh, but on saying that, the amount of time they spent on the road in the back of the van, they might as well have been.
1: Let's listen to some Hawkwind then from the early days. It's rather lovely, isn't it? It's pretty, sort of bucolic, almost quite catchy, uh, melodic, lots of... Quite a few chords in there. It's not really a harbinger of what was to come in terms of what... certainly I associate with Hawkwind of their main part of their career, right?
0: I mean, the reason I, I chose that track was just to illustrate that, you know, that Dave Brock was coming, you know, from a, a position of being a busker. And this is basically one of his kind of busking tunes. Um, but it also in Those early days was a kind of getting to know you track for Hawkwind. I mean, at the you know, even as I said from the very start, Hawkwind were kind of playing this kind of really quite um out there kind of acid rock music, but uh, they were canny enough to know that if they just kind of did a demo of 15 minutes of that, then they probably weren't going to get a foot in the door. So, a, a track like Hurry on Sundown was a, a way for them to say that you know, look, guys, we we kind of can write songs as well. Um, but I think it's it's also interesting uh, uh, in the lyrics of Hurry on Sundown that you you get the sense of it's a rallying cry for the the counterculture. That line there, there's hundreds of people like you and me, and I think that was kind of you know why it's an important track as well. It's it's it is really aligning Hawkwind with that counterculture. You know that's where they belong.
1: It's great to think about that, isn't it? I'm always fascinated by this idea that you know there was a communal community sense of being part of a counterculture, which is maybe even international, not just local. Uh, Nick Laird Clues, again, you know, he talked about that, as many of our guests have, you know, that it, was, it felt like an actual something going on, you know, which you could participate in. I guess if you're involved in Extinction Rebellion or even, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement, then you maybe also have that experience now. And there's always a counterculture. There's always an underground. It's happening in London now, somewhere, I'm sure, maybe southeast, maybe halfway up a tower block with a different kind of uh, group of young people. Uh, but Holtman were very much part of it, participant participants in it. They were soundtracking it,
0: right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, you know, the alternative society, such as such as it was in in those days, as I said, had gathered around Labrote Grove. But I think this is the real point that, one of the points I'm trying to make in the book is that, uh, you know, a lot of people, when they look back at this time, they say, well, you know, it's all over by the end of the 60s. You know, people like to say, you know, it goes from Woodstock to Altamont in the, in the space of a of a few months. And somehow the countercultural Project has failed. And that's the end of it. And that's frankly complete garbage because it's only really then that it starts to get going as a as a kind of mass movement, if you like, or if not a mass movement, it's something that starts to permeate the culture, you know, really from the end of the 60s through pretty much the first half of the 70s, you know, and not just in Labbrook Grove. It starts to spread out, you know, around the rest of the country and... Hawkwind are absolutely, you know, an integral part of the spread of this counterculture because they are the band who are going out there playing literally everywhere and not just once, you know, returning to venues as well. They're the real heralds of the underground, you know, not just with their music and their show, but, you know, they're going out there. um, They were selling, you know, copies of alternative magazines that you couldn't get anywhere else. Uh, There was obviously kind of, they were kind of bringing the, the drug culture with them as well, which is obviously an important part of the, the underground at the time so for me you know the days of the underground you know really is certainly the first half of the 70s you know that's that's when it, it becomes a thing you know and not not just through haughtwind but if you look at you know kind of you know just the music of the time you know this is when all of the the great kind of underground rock sounds you know kind of start to emerge so you know it, it, there's a slight kind of kind of 60s hipsterism about it, where it's saying, oh, man, it was kind of all over by the end of the 60s. But it's not the case at all. I mean, the other big case in point, of course, is the the Isle of Wight Festival of 1970, where Hawkwind famously play outside of the uh, the fence, pretty much non-stop for about five days. And that's this mass coming together of people, like a quarter of a million people, most of whom Mm -hmm. didn't have tickets. And this is then kind of reflected, again, for the next few years, the whole free festival or, or or just festival scene in general that kind of grows up is a kind of model of an alternate way of life. And, I mean, the point I make in the book is that it, it doesn't matter that these people didn't then all hit the hippie trail to India. The fact is, is that they had internalised the, the fact that there was a different way of being or a different way of thinking, you know, out there. There were other options available to what mainstream culture was offering And and as I say, I think Hawkwind are absolutely at the centre of all of that.
1: Yeah, there is this sort of idea that it ended at the end of the 60s, and of course it didn't. I mean, in with Neil and I, Danny the Drug Dealer, is that very famous quote, and he says, if you're you're hanging on to a rising balloon, you're presented with a difficult decision, let go before it's too late, or hang on and keep getting higher. Posing the question, how long can you keep a grip on the rope? They're selling hippie wigs in Woolworths, man. The greatest decade in the history of mankind is over. And in a way he was kind of right and in a way he was wrong because it was just getting going. In fact, the, maybe the important stuff got done in the seventies, didn't it? Certainly politically. You think about women's lib and gay gay rights, uh ecological stuff, green stuff, and uh, you know, things like the free school in West London, Frestonia, the independent state of Frestonia, Hethcote Williams, all those political agitators of West London. They were just really gearing up, weren't they? And it got darker and dirtier, more street. It was tough times in Britain, of course, economically. Um, But in fact, the counterculture itself was was deepening rather than disappearing.
0: That's right. I mean, this is all of the stuff that had been talked about at the end of the 60s, but it only really started mobilising, you know, things like... You know the women's lib movement gay liberation and uh, and as you say kind of people like the angry brigade as well you know you start to see kind of terrorist organizations emerging and you know and and it's 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 all the kind of revolutionary stuff that's talked about in the 60s actually starting to to happen and which is why it always kind of seems strange to me that, that somehow, you know, the counterculture is, is written off. And there's certainly a lot of people even at the time wanting to kind of write it off and saying this has been a failed experiment when there was so much evidence to, to the contrary. Um, so so absolutely, I, I, I would agree with that.
1: Let's have another tune. That's more like the Hawthorne dying. <laughs> I know.
0: Yeah, exactly. So, so suddenly, you know, that's from the the second album in, in Search of Space*. And uh, yeah, exactly. That, what we associate Hawkwind with this kind of repetitive, kind of riff rock. With the 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 the, the, the vocals as well, there are very important the way that they would often kind of use you know vocals as sounds in themselves rather than you know kind of just as words. And it's very difficult to pick those words out. But I I, I particularly like that clip because. It's got Nick Turner in this kind of drugged out drawl talking about people wanting to cut your hair and kind of cut cut your hair, sorry, and not giving you kind of any air, but you're also getting aware. And so (laughs) there is this kind of real hippie mantra in there. Um,
1: Yeah, and, uh, you know, why use two chords when one will do, maybe, you know, splash out and do two chords now and again, or even if it's it's someone's birthday, uh, lob a third one in, nothing too complicated. They understood the power of that, didn't they?
0: Yeah, I mean, and, and and just think how revolutionary that was in the British music scene. You know, you cannot think of any other band that's even doing anything like that because partic- the British music scene in particular was hung up at the time on, on kind of notions of kind of paying your dues and virtuosity and, you know, that you couldn't, you know, even be in a band at that time unless you were a master of your instrument and, you know, all of this kind of stuff. And Hawkwind just completely said no we're not interested in that um you know famously had non-musicians in the bands you know the guys making all the electronic sounds i mean they couldn't particularly play anything but they knew how to kind of make noises out of these various kind of boxes that they'd got and and that was you know musically speaking absolutely revolutionary
1: do you think they took a deliberate stance against uh some of that stuff i mean early 70s prog you know genesis yes and king Crimson. It was all very complicated, you know. It's almost as though to be a rock musician, you had to be classically trained and really know your stuff, uh, your scales, and all that sort of thing. And I mean, maybe just me, but I mean, a lot of it just seems very boring and sexless and pretentious, really. Did were they taking a stance against it, or were they just just doing their thing? I
0: think they were just doing their thing, and and but I mean, you're absolutely right. Um, in as much as the way that progressive rock very quickly you know starts to be perceived as well as um you know this kind of aspirational music form you know it's kind of uh, the rock aspiring to the classics and you know supposedly appealing to a you know kind of more of a i don't know student or kind of middle class audience whereas hawkwind aren't just a kind of working class band that would be incorrect to say i think they appealed across all all spectrum of society but it's interesting that that they are definitely, I think, seen as being in opposition to a lot of these groups, despite kind of, you know, they, they, they share certain attributes in as much as they were, they're both into kind of very long songs. But whereas in a Yes song, you you might have like, <clears throat> you know, 10 different time signature changes and, and multi-parts of the song. Something like uh, um, uh, what we've just listened to is, it's like 15 minutes kind of non-stop of the same thing. And I think a lot of, you know, people at the time or journalists were saying, well, what what's the point of this? A lot of people just didn't even understand what Hawkwind were trying to do. It's like, why would you want to listen to music like this that doesn't change, that is just repetitive and kind of hammers on like that? And, of course, now we kind of see it in a completely different context, that kind of music. We we understand where that's coming from. But I think at the time it was it was completely alien to, you know, a lot of the music writers. Yet the people at the grassroots who were you know, the people going to the shows absolutely got it and absolutely connected to, to what Hawkwind were trying to do.
1: Let's talk about drugs and how that impacted the the way they made music and played it and stuff. Obviously, drugs are a big part of the era, and I'm assuming big part of... Hortwind's life at that time and you can hear the sort of acid uh, influence even in that track but it's not the kind of highfalutin esoteric uh, cosmological thing that you might get with Yes or some of those other prog bands it's kind of down and dirty quite visceral isn't it Re- you know the repetition trance-like it's a bit more sort of shamanic or something uh, street shamanic anyway. I'm assuming that uh, drugs were a big part of what they were doing?
0: Yeah absolutely I mean if you speak to kind of and, and they'll kind of happily tell you that for the first you know five years of their existence they were you know kind of all their albums were recorded on acid and produced on acid and they were pretty much bombed out most of the time though obviously you know not so much that they couldn't get it together to actually kind of make the music and, and write the songs um and i, I think the acid uh, particularly early on is, is an absolute key part of the of the Hawkwind kind of experience um the way that um, they're trying to to mimic in a way that kind of perceptual whoosh that you get with with kind of acid where you know kind of just the smallest detail can become fascinating and it's the kind of thing that you're going to want to hang on to and, and dig into um I mean Hawkwind famously well according to Nick Turner anyway actually gave away a lot of liquid LSD you know these early shows when they were going around the country you know to kind of really literally change people's perception of, of, of the music so you know, um, but yeah, they were very much a, a, a kind of uh, an acid and 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 stoner pop band as well. Um, though of course, when people like Lemmy turn up, there's a, a an amphetamine kind of angle is introduced as well, um, which which kind of obviously fits in with that kind of repetitive thing.
1: Yeah, and they sort of prefigured uh, the rave generation, didn't they, by that with this combination of drugs and. You know, trance-like repetitive music, not too many changes, not too uh, too complicated, which allows the audience to get into this kind of deep rhythmic groove. But tell us how they, uh, and then they expand that, and of course with the light shows and visuals. So tell us how they went from being this band who's playing that kind of music, and maybe with Stacey the dancer, um, to employing you know these full-on visuals and this psychedelic light experience, you know, which must have amplified that that whole immersive 3D, trippy, all-involving experience of the shows, that also became their trademark. Other people have been doing it. Pink Floyd, of course, have been doing it too, and it was of the time somewhat, but they really kind of explore it. They sort of take it on. They make it part of the whole experience, and that's what impacts the audience quite powerfully, right?
0: Well, it's interesting. I mean, really, from the start, Hawkwind we're, were very... Um, uh, kind of cognizant of that they uh they used to rehearse with a strobe turned on you know they would actually get to rehearse while the strobe light was playing so you know they just had very basic effects like that at the start but as they become more popular and more people know about them and want to work with them and obviously they make a bit more money they keep on adding to the light show and In 1972, September 1972, they've already had a couple of guys uh, who've been working with them on the light show for a while, Primitive Lasers, uh, these guys called Mike Hart and Alan Day. But in September 1972, they're joined by a guy called Jonathan Smeaton, and the three of them together essentially become Liquid Len and The Lens Men. And they put together this light show, which is, you know, kind of something which probably only pink floyd uh, were the only other comparable band who were trying to do something similar at the time so they're combining not only lighting but also kind of slides putting together um kind of very primitive kind of loops as well so you're getting actual kind of movement um happening behind the band stuff that you know it would seem probably primitive if you saw it today but at the time you know where fans would have just been used to you know a couple of crappy follow spots and that's it you know would have literally been kind of a mind-blowing experience and as you say if you're if you're on kind of acid or whatever you know it, it just really kind of adds to that whole experience and also you've got you know stacia dancing during the space ritual show there's another couple of dancers as well you've got the music kind of like you know stopping to allow bob calvert to read out these amazing kind of apocalyptic poems in the middle of it and The whole thing becomes a real multimedia experience. It's it's so far distant from what a standard rock gig was at the time.
1: And also, I think you say in the book, um, you talk about the fact that when they had... Some commercial success with silver machine later on with this you know this one <laughs> brush with the charts um and made some cash you know that they spent quite a bit of it on in, sort of on their light show right
0: yeah i mean the money was always kind of poured back into the band and as i said that was around the time when liquid len and the lensman came into being simply because they could they could fund it um but uh, yeah so so absolutely i mean they were always about kind of how can they make the show you know better they 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 uh, there were certainly kind of money wrangles in Hawkwind later on, but certainly earlier on, they very much viewed themselves as a as a communal project.
1: Right. So, but let's move on a bit. Let's have a listen to this. Case of sonic on your these rules. It's a bit late to say that. <laughs> I'm panicking already. Um, extraordinary stuff. It's like sort of JG Ballard. All well. Um, you know, public information film all mixed in together and quite alarming, I think. Sonic Attack, what's going on there, Joe?
0: So that track, um, this is something we haven't talked about so far, was was written by Michael Moorcock, who, you know, is an incredibly important figure in um, the science fiction scene at the time and just happened to kind of live round the corner from them in Ladbroke Grove. And he um, met up with them um, and um, offered to write for them, and that was one of the the first things that he wrote. And you're absolutely right; it's meant to be like a parody of public service announcements, um, actually during the Second World War, but also, um, you know, kind of absolutely fitting into this concept of kind of as purveyors of, of of kind of sonic attack, you know, not kind of easy listening, um, and. So Moorcock actually originally uh, would kind of recite that with the band, but um, by the time they got to Space Ritual, which is where that recording comes from, Robert Calvert had very much made it his own. And as I said, you know, just imagine, you know, you're listening to 10 minutes of, you know, kind of, you know, heavy riffing and electronic sound effects, and then it suddenly stops and you've got this kind of guy kind of haranguing you with these crazy apocalyptic kind of words it, it, it must have been mind-blowing, mind-altering on all kinds of different levels.
1: Well, I mean, you know, if I was an acid, it, it's the last thing I want to hear. You're just sort of grooving into the light show and some hypnotic music and then Calvert appeared like some raging preacher from the sort of 25th century haranguing you with that Um Quite alarming, right?
0: I think so, and 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 really, I mean, this gets to the heart of the the whole subtitle of the book: the radical escapism uh, in the age of paranoia. So, Hawkwind, obviously, in a way, I mean, are, are kind of an incredibly escapist band. You know, you went to their shows to, you know, kind of experience, you know, a, a trip in 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 music, if you like, but. It wasn't just a mellow trip by any means. I mean, it was. It was very much also kind of saying, "This is the world that we're escaping from." You know, this is this is the world of kind of Sonic Attack of every man for himself. Um, you know, really kind of laying bare the whole. You know, kind of ca- capitalist society. Uh, straight society at the time so and a lot of the lyrics of the songs are they're about escape you know and it might be escaping into space but there's always this sense of the darkness that they're escaping from and as I think you said earlier this is particularly something that that comes through in the 1970s you know when the world seems to be you know under threat from you know all kinds of you know different kind of dooms and, 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 and glooms, you know, whether it's the oil crisis or the population bomb or ecological breakdown or, or obviously kind of, um, you know, the, the threat of nuclear war. And, and Hawkwind kind of sucked all of this stuff up and kind of spat it out again.
1: Well, Michael Moorcock's fascinating as well, isn't he? I mean, at that time, he was this incredibly <laughs> prolific author, you know, edited, editing the magazines and uh, churning out these science fantasy books at an amazing rate. Uh, so they've got this kind of literary connection with him. And then of course Calvert, Robert Calvert, you know, who we talked about, um, who definitely worthy of a program of his own. Um, he's a poet really, and you talk about the way that he transformed Hortwin from this being a space rock band to being a science fiction band. That sounds intriguing. Tell us more.
0: Yeah, I mean, in a way, he he really kind of uses them as a as a canvas for his own imagination. Um of, of which he had an enormous amount and and you're right he, he's kind of influenced by uh, a lot of the new wave science fiction uh, that's coming out that, that michael moorcock um is helping to to promote i mean you talk about moorcock as a fantasy writer and certainly he churned out a lot of fancy books but a lot of those were just to fund the magazine that he was the editor of which was new worlds and new worlds is 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 absolutely kind of a, a turning point in the whole history of science fiction, and it's it, it's also where people like J.G. Ballard really get their kind of start from, and you know, incredibly influential. And so, kind of Calvert is in that tradition as well, but he's also interested in you know the kind of golden age utopian sense of science fiction as well. So he's into the whole crazy heroics of science fiction, but also sees science fiction as a vehicle for for satire and subversion and he brings all of this to hawkwind um very quick i mean you you he you know in the album in search of space this is their second album it comes with this famously with the hawkwind log which is this um kind of booklet full of it's an impossible to describe what it's about but it's 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 full of kind of calverts um vision of Hawkwind as as a band and the way they they hop back and forward through uh time as kind of their saviors of mankind or their dooming mankind and it's it's written very much in style of of the time it's it's quite psychedelic but then by the time later on when he becomes their full-time vocalist in the end of 1975 through to to, to 79. His his take on science fiction has become a lot more sophisticated, and Hawkwind themselves, as a result, become a lot more synth- uh, sophisticated uh, in in what they're talking about.
1: You said um, it was Calvert's gonzoid intelligence that saved Hawkwind from becoming a psychedelic novelty act, and uh, you can clearly detect Calvert's voice in John Lydon, Howard Devoto, and Jella Biafra, amongst many others. And you said you know Lydon was a was it was a died in the wool Hawkwind fan and. That's the other thing about Hawkwind, and particularly with uh, Calvert at the head, they were sort of proto-punks, weren't they, as well?
0: Oh, absolutely. Um, I mean, and again, if we're talking about how different Hawkwind were, uh, I mean, there weren't many kind of bands with a frontman like Calvert, you know, doing the rounds in the 1970s. I mean, in, in many ways, it's not not hyper... Uh, uh, it, it, it's it's not kind of over-the-top to, to say that um, Calvert is, is kind of comparable to Bowie in many ways, you know. Um, he has the same kind of uh, you know intelligence, the same kind of obsessions. Uh, and and also, you know, as you say, a, a kind of real punk edge to what he's doing. He's He's always looking to kind of push things. He's not interested in in kind of towing the mainstream line. he He always wants to kind of, you know, be out there with saying something different and 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 this was something which was was noted at the time when when punk, you know, kind of became a thing that a lot of these figures, and as you say, John Lydon in particular, had been, you know, major Hawkwind fans, because again, if you wanted to see a band that wasn't prog rock or wasn't a kind of classic rock band in the 70s, you went to see Hawkwind, and and the Hawkwind shows in many ways were real breeding grounds for, you know, a lot of the figures who who then emerged on the punk scene. Uh, I mean, obviously, as well, because you know they're coming out from a similar place. A lot of them—they're coming from West London. I mean, the Clash is the obvious example. I mean, they're they're in exactly the same place, Labrook Grove, is where Hawkwind coming from, and Hawkwind were unavoidable. You know, everybody had seen Hawkwind. Everybody had gone to a Hawkwind
1: show. Right, and as we said earlier, they shared quite a lot in common with punks, didn't they? There was a sort of DIY attitude, sort of thing going on. Um, you know, not separated from the public from the fans and you know I don't think technical ability uh, was a barrier to being in the band when it came to playing music probably didn't get in the way but you know they were anti bourgeois weren't they they were anti pretension in some way they might have been patrolling the outer limits of space and science fiction but at the same time they were quite street. street uh, you know they would turn up and play anywhere you know in their vans and um, you know that was all quite punk in itself wasn't it I mean, they seem like pirates to me, sort of psychedelic punk pirates.
0: <laughs> I think that's that's absolutely right. Um, but I, I think what needs to be stressed is that I think a lot of writers at the time said, well, Hawkwind sound like this because they don't have the uh, the chops to play any differently. And while Hawkwind weren't virtuoso musicians, they certainly could have played differently if they wanted to. The point is, is that they chose to play like this. You know, they chose to kind of pursue often kind of quite simple riffs, but often doing, you know, quite sophisticated things with them as well. I mean, particularly as they progress through the decade. And certainly when you get figures like Simon House coming on board, who is by anybody's estimation, you know, a keyboard wizard, uh, you know, and, and their, their sounds become, you know, kind of incredibly colourful from the mid 70s onwards. But there's that earthiness and that unpretentiousness, um, which is absolutely kind of essential to the to Hawkwinds, Ethos, and that is very much, I think, what the punks picked up on.
1: Right. Let's have another tune. Urban Guerrilla. Quite a difficult track to release these days, I think. Um, Is that Lemmy on bass?
0: Yeah, that's absolutely uh, Lemmy on bass there. So, I mean, Urban (laughs) Guerrilla is... um, So, Silver Machine in 1972 goes on to become this freakishly kind of large hit all around the, the world, and as you say, ends up funding you know, the the space ritual show that they then put on. And understandably, I think people are saying, well, so, you know, when's the follow-up single coming? And they take their time and then the follow-up single they deliver is a song called Urban Gorilla, which, you know, starts with the lines, I'm an urban gorilla, I make bombs in my cellar. Um, not the most obvious kind of, you know, opening line on, on a song that you're kind of hoping to become another hit single, but that's Hawkwind all over and it's particularly Robert Calvert all over because that's his lyric and that's his performance, and even though you know you, you listen to the the words and you realize it's 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 kind of satirical it's not meant to be he's not actually kind of saying that he 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 wants to be an urban gorilla, but the problem is is that he's so his performance is so passionate he's so kind of in character that it's very easy to kind of think my god here's a band who are advocating kind of you know kind of blowing up um." you know, kind of the world. Uh, unfortunately, the release of it coincided with an, uh, a, an IRA bombing campaign. And so the, the single was famously kind of withdrawn after three weeks. Um, but it's just another kind of uh, example of kind of what other band would really be releasing a single like that in Britain in
1: 1973. Well, I don't think you'd would you be allowed to... Uh, release it these days, it seems unlikely, doesn't it? But um, it was certainly very anti-commercial, and that seemed to be part of their ethos too, doesn't it? The music does change, you know, from the sort of bucolic 60s through the... Various in- incarnations in the 70s, you know, with Moorcock and Calvert and, you know, what, what happens next. But they there is, they stay true to that sort of rather anti-commercial, you know, West London underground vibe. But even when they're not living in West London anymore, they carry on that way. They don't retire to the country in an obvious sort of uh, rock star way. Uh, and then, you know, Calvert's dead. Lemmy goes on to fame and fortune with Motorhead, Nick Turner and they've brought two of the main hot wind people repeatedly fall out but then they go into the 80s and i guess even though that's not really part of your book, you could talk a little bit about that because they you know they maybe they fade from public consciousness more but they they're always there they're always doing their thing right the way through into the 90s and there's a whole other scenes which they become part of then right
0: yeah, absolutely. Um there's the uh I guess the the free festival scene um which kind of, you know, comes from the whole gosh peace convoy, the 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 traveller scene which I don't know if it's even how much that's remembered these days, but that was a that was a big big thing at the time, you know. And it was a big worry for mainstream society, the idea of these you know, this convoy of kind of hippies driving around the country. You know, trying to stage free festivals here and there, and Hawkwind absolutely a, a, a rallying point for that. But then, as you move into the the eighties, uh, sorry, the end of the eighties, you know, um, you know, outdoor raids are starting to emerge as well, and and this kind of all kind of uh, you know mixes in with with, with the same thing. It, it, the, the the traveler convoy scene and the, some of the rave scene starts to kind of converge. And you know, with bands like I don't know, kind of Ozric Tentacles and stuff like that, these these were kind of big, big bands that again were, for the most part, ignored by the mainstream. But there were a lot of people went to see these groups and followed these groups. And Hawkwind were absolutely the in, the inspiration. And in you know, and by the time we get into the nineties, Hawkwind themselves are kind of turning themselves, not exactly into a, a techno band, but they were certainly integrating a lot of these kind of electronic trancy sounds into in, in, into what they were doing. And um, you're absolutely right. Is that Hawkwind, certainly in terms of their media profile, it kind of waxes and wanes, but they're always there and they're always guaranteed of an audience.
1: Well, when right, when Rave came along, um, you know, with repetitive beats and light shows and uh, psychedelic drugs and stuff, Hawkwind must have been... Yeah, well, you know, well done for catching up. We've been we've been at this since the late 60s, early 70s. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there isn't really anybody else like them. I was thinking, who can you compare them to for somebody outside the UK who's listening to this who doesn't know? But I suppose the nearest thing I can think of with Hawkwind is to say The Grateful Dead, right? Not because of sound-wise particularly, but although they have got some of that, you know, jams going on for infinity type thing, and, you know, led by a kind of, in the old days anyway... Uh, you know a guitarist um, but something to do with that kind of community of people around them you know I'm sure there's lots of people out there still who are who are sort of part of that Hortwinds world in a, some way you know and uh, and share that kind of lifestyle you know the lifestyle that you, you describe as the underground you know that's still going on in parts of the UK and uh, it's a community thing right a tribe thing maybe tribe tribal is the best way to describe it.
0: I think that the thing about Hawkwind is that it's very difficult to be a, a casual Hawkwind fan. You're either kind of into them or you aren't. I mean, they they inspire that kind of level of, of devotion, as you say, a, a kind of communal thing, similar, I guess, to the whole, you know, Deadhead community that you have around the Grateful Dead. Um, and while there are you know some similarities between Hawkwind and the Grateful Dead, um, there are probably kind of bigger differences. Um, I mean, in terms of musical terms, uh, certainly when they started out, people kind of had them tagged as a, as a kind of poor man's Pink Floyd. Um, a lot of people noted that there were some similarities to the Velvet Underground, certainly the Velvet Underground of uh, White Light, White Heat. Um, and obviously, uh, there was the the crack rock bands as well, people like Can and Amon Duel, who they, um, and Noy who they they were certainly aware of, and there was some cross-fertilisation there. Um, And that was more probably acknowledged in the 1970s than it is today. Um, Obviously, Crack Rock is very hip and cool still these days, whereas a lot of people will still turn their nose up at the mention of Hawkwind, even though they're musically very much in the same area. Um, So, yes, I mean, they are a unique band, but there are kind of places where they cross over with other bands as well.
1: Well, let's just briefly talk about the band members. Obviously, Brock's always at the centre of it right from the beginning to this day. Um, and you mentioned, we talked about Calvert and Moorcock and Nick Turner. and uh, But there has been this, it seemed anyway, this kind of rolling, gigantic cabaret of, of band members coming in and going out the door. Um, have you counted up how many there have been to date? <laughs>
0: I think you certainly must be getting to towards probably a hundred um but what's interesting about hawkwind i mean they're often certainly in the 70s are often accused of somehow always sounding the same where i always kind of think well there are certain elements of the hawkwind sound which you know and, and and most of them are coming from dave brock he has a very particular way of playing the guitar this kind of choppy stun riff guitar style which is instantly identifiable as hawkwind and as, if that's in the mix somewhere, you can kind of say, yes, this is Hawkwind. But, you know, there's all kinds of, you know, sounds which have been hung off that, you know, throughout their existence, you know, from the, you know, kind of mid 70s onwards. They start to sound a little kind of proggier, then they get a bit more new wave. And then in the 80s, they're kind of picking up on things like the new wave of British heavy metal. The sound becomes a lot more metallic. Um, they have um, a... Uh, a guitarist called Hugh Lloyd Langdon, who who kind of joins them, who had originally been on the very first Hawkwind album and had had a terrible acid experience at the Isle of Wight and left the band, but then he rejoins them at the end of the seventies and then turns them more into a kind of kind of cosmic metal band, if you like, uh, with his kind of lead guitar. But then he leaves, and as I say, in the nineties they're then adding kind of the kind of trancy techno sounds to their to their sound, and then you know, right up until the, the, the present day, where they've, they've kind of, in a way, gone back to more of their classic 70s sound. Um, so, so yes, I mean, they've had an enormous amount of characters gone through the band, but there, there are always kind of certain elements which, which kind of anchor everything.
1: Joe, we, we've hardly scratched the surface of the phenomena that is Hawkwind, but, of course, the book, your book, uh, goes into it in much more depth, and it's a wonderful... Uh, evocation of the era and that whole west london underground scene too um tell us a little bit about the writing of it because it was mainly based on oral testimonies right how did it come about how did you do it
0: okay so the initial idea uh, for the book um came from a feature that i I wrote for the Quietus in two thousand and thirteen where i Kind of wrote a big long piece about Space Ritual, which is their favourite, uh, f- uh, famous live album from the nineteen seventies, and that got such a good reaction um, because I was trying to not just talk about the music but the kind of cultural background to uh, to Hawkwind at the time. That I thought you know maybe there's the you know there's mileage in actually writing a book. As I said, there's been biographies on Hawkwind, but not ones that particularly concentrate on that cultural aspect, and particularly in the 1970s. And so that was the inspiration, and so I started pitching the idea around. Uh, I think it was the end of 2015, and I just got incredibly lucky to um, hit um, Mark at Stranger Tractor, who turned out to be a huge Hawkwind fan, and you know very quickly said, "Absolutely, yes, let's do this." Um, so I started writing it um, in 2016 and initially I wasn't intending to kind of speak to you know every man and his dog about Hawkwind because I've become um, a bit wary of the fact that often when you, you you kind of speak to people who've been speaking about a topic for the last 40 or 50 years they tend to you know, come back to the same quotes that they've always kind of trotted out. And it's it's sometimes kind of difficult to break through that. But as it was, I, I did end up speaking to a lot of ex-members, a lot of the, the management, a lot of the other people around the band. And there's actually a special edition of the book that's coming out uh, as well as the standard paperback. And the special edition comes with a a separate volume of these interviews, because I wasn't actually able to kind of fit all of these amazing kind of recollections into one book um and so that that that's kind of there as a separate volume uh, of all of these people as well um but yes and the the book was finished probably 2019 so it took about three years to write all together and then really it's just been Fine-tuned uh, um, for the last year or so.
1: Great stuff. So, Joe, where can people find out more about you and about the book and in its various editions and incarnations, etc.?
0: Okay, well, you can always go to the Strange Attractor website, but the book itself also has uh, its own website, which is daysoftheunderground.com. Uh, I'm also on Twitter as Joe Banks Writer. So, if people want to follow me <laughs> to uh, to hear endless Hawkwind trivia, then that <laughs> would be great
1: great stuff well listen why don't we finish with this of course Hortwind's track Days of the Underground thanks a lot Joe the days of the
0: underground.
1: Bob Calvert there singing for on Days of the Underground we should do a programme I think about Bob Calvert he's one of those amazing kind of lost semi-forgotten uh, characters from the counterculture but in the meantime you can read more about Calvert in Joe's amazing book Days of the Underground available on Stranger Tractor Press We'll be back next time with more tales from the underground, from the counterculture. In the meantime, you can check us out, www.bureauoflostculture.com. Thanks for listening.